Open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. We're in our series, The Armor of God, Bennett. We've got a few weeks left of it yet. Have you enjoyed this? I mean, you guys pulling stuff out of this, understanding this stuff. It's, it's important. There's so much bad information when it comes to spiritual warfare and the, the armor and all this kind of stuff out there that it's hard to break through it to find the good stuff. And sometimes we just got to make it simple. You know what sells books? Complicated ideas. Complicated ideas, overdeveloped ideas, you know, inspiration. This is what the Lord showed me. You know, the, the idea, just to give you an example of this, I had a guy tell me one time, we were talking about the age of accountability, right? Is it in the Bible? Is it not in the Bible? Okay, there's arguments on both sides. So I don't lose sleep over it one way or the other. But the guy says, oh, the Lord showed me the age of accountability is age eight. Okay, that's fine. But how do we prove that? How do we back that up? And those are the type of things like, yeah, I'm thinking about writing a book on it. Okay, well, here we go. And that's what happens a lot of with this, this spiritual warfare stuff. Because this kind of stuff is in the minds of people because of Hollywood. The books we, we talk about, especially the time of year we just exited out of with Halloween and all of that kind of stuff. This is where this stuff comes from. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and the, take the helmet of salvation, in the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We've gone through this thing piece by piece, right? And, and just a quick recap, what we, we talk about. First of all, he says, take up the whole armor of God. That tells us something. It means we can put it down. It tells us we have to do it. We take it up. We put it on. Why do we do that? So we can withstand the attacks of the enemy. We've done all that we can do. We stand girding our waist with truth, the loin belt of truth. Everything hinges into that. We put on the breastplate of a righteousness, this ornate thing here that it just protects all that we have. The shot of your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The shield of faith. And it says above all, don't forget, above all is not saying that this is more important than anything. It's that that shield is in front of you. It's above everything. It's a covering. Your faith is a covering, if you will, is how the Greek reads in this. That we can quench the, all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And we talked about what are these fiery darts. They're darts, that, they're arrows that look just like a regular arrow. You couldn't tell the difference until it hits. And then by that time, it's too late if you're not prepared. We take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And this is where we are today, the sword of the Spirit. I have been waiting for three months to get to this point. Because the Lord started showing me things when I first started preparing for this thing um, with the sword of the Spirit that just kind of I don't know, a light bulb came on for me. It's something that I hadn't seen before. And so in this passage, we see all sorts of stuff going on. That battles will come, but they won't come every day. The battles are going to come, but we have to be prepared. There are ebbs and flows when it comes to our spiritual walk. We have good days, and we have bad days, right? We can all say that. And a lot of it has to do with our emotional state. 
the things that are going on, the things that we let bother us, because the truth is, is most of the time we don't put on the whole armor of God. We talk about the armor of God, but we don't put it on. We have to be prepared to maintain our victorious position over the enemy. We have to, that's why we do this. And the purpose of this series is not to make you run around and look for a devil behind every door. I didn't want that. I want you to understand who the battle is against, where the battle's taking place. We're not going around there looking for little devils and looking for things that we can cast out and all that kind of stuff. We have the authority to do such things when the time comes. But the battle is the mind. The armor is designed to help equip us so that when the battles come, we're prepared to stand against them. When you've done all to stand, we stand, therefore, having done this. And so here we are, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, I want to look at this. There are actually five different swords that were used by Roman armies. And we're going to look at these very briefly to show you the, the differentiations between the two. But the first one would be a gladius sword. G-L-A-D-I-U-S is glad. This thing, and you've seen picture of this, and you see it sometimes in movies, but these things were extremely long and heavy. They were this broad-shouldered sword that it would take two hands to swing. They weighed a ton. And so this thing was the most aesthetically pleasing out of the five, but because of its weight, it was also very cumbersome. I mean, you had to be, you're already carrying all this armor around. Now you got this big old heavy sword. And you think about it, in order to swing it properly without being just a complete hoss, you got to set down your shield. And that is not a good thing. This thing was obviously referred to as a two-handed sword. No, you know, no, no, no shocking revelation there two hands to lift it, but it was only sharpened on one side. So it had one side that was very sharp, and the other side was blunt. And so not only did you have to use two hands to swing it, you had to make sure you're swinging it the right way. Swinging it backward, backwards would hurt, wouldn't kill you, but it would hurt. So there were, this was the primary sword that was used early on by the Roman army, but what happened is, is a group called the, I can't even say this, Carthaginians, something like that. It was an army that they came up against and actually kind of whipped the tail of the Roman army because they had a much lighter, easier to use sword. They didn't have to use two hands to swing it or anything like that. So pretty much the Romans walked away from this one. This was early, early, early Roman army. So after this all takes place, the second sword they had was a lot shorter. It was more narrow. It was about 17 inches long, I don't know, two and a half inches wide, somewhere in that, that range. And it was significantly lighter than the previous one. And this thing was popular because it was so much easier to use. It was a lot smaller. The third one was actually even shorter than this. It looked more like a dagger than it actually did a sword. And what they would do is they would carry this one. They would usually have two swords in this case. They would carry it kind of underneath a cloak that they would wear. It was in the scabbard that was hooked onto the belt. And this outer coat that they had would, would cover it. You wouldn't see it. But if they got in close, they could quickly pull it out and use it and kill the enemy. Okay? The fourth sword was very long, but it was very slender, so it was light. You could carry this one with one hand, and this was primarily used by cavalry, kind of like you would see if you look at old American cavalry pictures, something very, very similar to this. Now, this one was used by them and could be an effective weapon. It was more of a sporting sword. They would use it in a sport similar to fencing, uh, things like that. It had really long reach because it was so long and very light, so it made it very effective, and they liked that. But the fifth sword is the one that Paul talked about in the passage that we read in Ephesians 6.17. And I've got a picture of it up here. And you can see the Greek word there. Makera is how I'm going to say it. I don't know how you're supposed to say it. 
But this thing was about 19 inches long. Now this is different than most of the time when you see a depiction of a Roman sword. And this is not a perfect illustration of that, but it was the closest I could find on the internet. It's amazing what you can find on Google and what you can't find on Google when you need it. But this thing, most of the time when you see a Roman sword or a depiction of the sword of the Spirit, it's more like the second one where it's about a foot and a half long, it's sharpened on two, it comes to a, one, a point. And so this one was about 19 inches long, so it's about the same size, just a hair longer, but the tip of the sword would be kind of have a curve on it. And so you can kind of see that there on the ones that actually curve a little bit more than that. Um, but this thing was very sharp. It was sharpened on both sides, and it was very deadly. That curve had an important feature in it. And what would happen is when they would get into combat with somebody, they would stab them, okay? They would grab it with both hands, and they would twist it, and then they would pull it out. And when they pulled it out, the entrails of whoever they stabbed came out with the sword, which is why that curve was there. This thing was incredibly dangerous. This, I mean, it was sharp. So that was why it was in there. And this is the one that, they, that Paul is talking about. It would really rip the insides to shred. It would do a lot of damage. And this is the picture that Paul's painting here, is that our sword, when we use it properly, does a lot of damage. It rips the enemy to shreds, but we've got to keep in mind, really, who's the enemy we're facing? Okay? It's not directly the devil. Okay, I want to make that very clear. And so when we talk about the Word of God, we address this early on with the loin belt and how the loin belt is associated with the Word of God. It's used the word logos. You've got two words that we use for, for the word is logos and rhema. Logos, as we know it, is the written Word of God, is what we call our Bibles. It is actually more complex than that, the difference between these two, and that's not at all encumbersome, but that is the basics of it, so you kind of understand that. So the Logos is the written Word of God. When Jesus was the Word, the Word was in the beginning and all that, that's Logos used every single time in that passage in John 1. But the sword here is actually a rhema, okay? Now, for those of you who are familiar with Kenneth Hagin, he founded Rhema. It's where I went to Bible school. It's where I'm credentialed with. But what this is, the definition of this is something that is spoken clearly, spoken vividly, spoken in undeniable language, or spoken in unmistakable, unquestioned, unquestionable, certain, and definite terms. A lot to say there, but what this is basically, this is where we get the idea of, I have a word from the Lord. When people say that, they don't realize what they're saying, but that is something that would be considered a rhema. It is something that the Lord would drop in your heart, and then you would say, I have a word from, I have a rhema from the word. You could say it the same way. So these rhema words are very powerful. They're very effective. There's a reason that Paul used it as, as this sword. Look at John 14 and verse 26. It says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The Holy Spirit here will give you a rhema, and this rhema, more often than not, is a reminder of a scripture or a passage, or maybe it's a promise of God. Very seldom, but not always, is it something that's just kind of abstract and off the wall? Those are different. Those can be a prophecy or something like that. A rhema is a specific word or message that the Holy Spirit quickens in our hearts and minds at a specific time and for a specific purpose. Robert Morris, pastor of Gateway Church down in Dallas, was talking about he was overseas one time, got very sick. 
I don't remember exactly what happened, but I mean, it was bad. He had to have blood transfusions and things like that. Well, he didn't have his Bible with him wherever he happened to be. And so the Holy Spirit just kept bringing all these scriptures from the Old Testament, the promises of healing through the New Testament. And he kept standing on those. And after about three hours of that, he realized he had his phone and had a Bible on that, and it made it a lot simpler. But again, it was just this rhema word. What is he needing right now? I mean, it was life or death with him. He may not have made it. He's standing on the promises. The Holy Spirit is using that. And so we see, we talked about the loin belt, but the sword and the loin belt are absolutely inseparable. The loin belt had clips on it. Every piece of that armor, in one way or another, was tucked in, attached to this loin belt. And when we talk about the loin belt being truth, what we talked about is how everything we have is founded in truth. The foundation is truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Everything that we have, that the Word of God is true. And so when you have truth on your side, you can stand confidently. And so here we see that the sword and the loin belt, they're absolutely inseparable. The shield that they had would rest on a clip on the right side. So they would lock it in place and they would carry it. It took the weight off their arm, but it enabled to be in front of them a lot easier. The sword would be on a clip on the left side. So a lot of them would fight left-handed. I'd have to reverse that. Okay? I can't, if you've ever seen me throw a ball left-handed, you'd understand why. This loin belt, as we said, is the written Word of God. It's representative of that. And the written Word of God is the primary source of a rhema word from God. Okay? Now, the written, I want to say that again. The written Word of God is the primary source of a rhema word from God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit came to guide us into all truth and bring remembrance of all things that Jesus said. Jesus is the Word. It reminds you of, this, of a passage or, or a scripture that's pertinent to whatever you happen to be facing. These rhemas are the Holy Spirit's powerful rebuff to the devil's attempt to penetrate your mind with lies and accusations. If you guys remember, we talked about wiles. What were wiles? They were the methods that come from the Greek word methodos, the pathway that the enemy used. He's always trying to come against our mind. And these rhemas are the rebuff that the, the, the Holy Spirit gives us in order to conquer those. And this is why we absolutely must study Scripture. Not people who write books about Scripture, although those things are okay. We have to study the Scripture. We have to meditate. On scripture, which means we're just constantly replaying it in our mind, going through it. Good times to do that is when you're by yourself in your house, whether you're cleaning, if you're on the job and you got some free time while you're driving. Constantly, we're meditating on the verses themselves and pulling and allowing the Holy Spirit to pull pieces and pull truth out of those things. Not just listening to people who talk about Scripture, but listening and meditating on Scripture. It's this reservoir that we, we maintain in our lives of truth that the Holy Spirit can pull from when we need it. And we've all been in this situation where we're going through something, we're facing something, whatever it will be, and all of a sudden a verse pops in your head out of nowhere that deals specifically with some trial. Sometimes when I'm doing counseling, I'm sitting there talking to somebody and immediately I have a scripture that pops into my head that is exactly what they need. And I pray every time I'm getting ready to meet with somebody, whether it's a counseling session because they're having a hard time, or maybe it's an unbeliever, Holy Spirit, I ask that you bring all things to my remembrance that I can be effective in what I'm about to do. And I tell you what, it's amazing the stuff that comes into my head there because it's brilliance. And you know how I know it's the Holy Spirit? Because most of the time, it's not brilliance that pops into my head. I can distinct the two. God, Chris. I'm from Nebraska. You guys get that, right? 
So this written word of God, this logos, is like this gladius sword. And this kind of how they, they compare this. It's very broad shoulder. And it's thick and it's heavy. And it'll do some damage. We need to have it. We need to know it. We need to swing it. We need to be prepared with it. We need to know how to use it. All of these things. But here's what happens. When we let the enemy close, that's when we truly need a rhema. Because it's small. It's short. It's quick. It'll penetrate right then and there. More often than not, a word from the Lord in a time that we're needing it, facing a battle, it means that we didn't put on the armor properly, and now it's in response to that. Now, we choose to listen to it or not, but it's not every day that we get these. And so there's a guy who was a Roman historian. His name was Vegetius, V-E-G-E-T-I-U-S. He said this, in, in talking about these swords that, that the Roman army used, this is the early 4th century, a stroke with the edges, though made with ever so much force, seldom kills, as the vital parts of the body are defended by both the bones and armor. On the contrary, a stab, though it penetrates but two inches, is generally fatal. So it's not just the swinging of the sword, is what he's saying here. It's not just swinging. It's getting in there, and it is sticking this thing, twisting it, and pulling it back out, and letting that thing die. Referring to the enemy here is what, what we're talking about. It's not just hitting him with the edge. It's the stabbing action that mortally wounds him. And these rhema words are often very short, very concise, and very to the point. They don't have to be long and complicated to be a word from the Lord. And a lot of times you, we get a simple word from the Lord. And then because of our nature, we blow it into a thus saith the Lord Almighty. And they start speaking in King James English and, and things like that. I, it's just another example. I went into a hospital one time and I was praying for somebody. It was, it was, a, it was a bad situation. They weren't 100% sure if they are going to make it. They didn't end up making it. God was faithful. We, I prayed for them. I went in there by myself, prayed for them, prayed that God would heal them, stood on the scriptures. I walked out and they're like, did you get a word from the Lord? And I said, yeah, lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. And they're like, well, no, 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 I mean, I know that, but did, did God show you something? I'm like, yeah, He did. That when a believer lays hands on the sick, they'll recover. I don't need a word from the Lord to go pray for somebody. He said to do it, so I'm just going to do it. I'm going to trust Him to take care of it. You know, but that's what we want. you got people that chase these prophets around all the time, needing a word from the Lord. And you know what's funny? And Daniel and I were talking about this this morning. Those words from the Lord that they're chasing... They're so superficial a lot of times. And I don't want to undermine this because there are true people that walk in an office of the prophet or that God can prophesy through somebody. He promises that. But I'm talking about people who stand up on stage and they'll say things, and this is how shallow it can be a lot of times. It's almost like you are going to eat lunch today and you're going to enjoy it, thus saith the Lord. I mean, that's the superficiality of it a lot of times. It's nothing deep. So, I mean, again, I'm not trying to paint everybody with a broad brush here. But we're always chasing this word when we have the word. We have the Logos. We stand on it. We believe God. These rhemas are there when we need them, and He brings them when we need them. But look at some of these. They don't have to be long and complicated. Noah received a directive from the Lord and was relatively short considering the ramifications. Most of it, I mean, at the bottom line was this. He's like, hey, bad stuff's coming. Build a boat. Most of the word from the Lord was how to build the boat. But I mean, it's pretty short, and it's about to destroy every living creature except them. Abraham was told by God to leave Mesopotamia and follow God. And it was a whole three verses long. Hey, pack up everything you've ever known, ever done, everything like that. Come follow me. 
Most of us would be like, whoa, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, I need this confirmed. I, you know, I mean, all of this kind of stuff. But it's short and to the point. Joseph received a word from God in the form of basically two very short dreams dealing with his personal life. Moses got his mandate from God in a relatively short manner, all things considered. You, talk, you look how long it was, had more to do with Moses arguing with God about what to do and how to do it. Mary got a word from God. You are with child. Congratulations. The Messiah is in you. You won the lottery. I mean, it was short to the point. Now go do this. Paul, look at Paul. Paul was constantly influenced by these supernatural words from God. I want to look at a, just I'm just going to go through these real, real quick. But in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, it's the conversion part, the Damascus Road. What happened? God showed up. Hey, quit killing Christians, now become one of them. Paul's like, oh, okay, we can do that. I don't think you're going to argue with God if you stand in front of you. How about with Ananias concerning Paul in verses 10 through 16, talking about that. Hey, go pray for Paul. And Ananias, most of that passage is, pray for who? I don't think so. He kills people like me. You know, we're arguing with God. Paul, when he's actually sent forth in his calling in Acts 13, you be the apostle to the Gentiles. Pretty simple. He received a word from the Lord to prepare for persecution in Jerusalem in Acts 21, 11. Hey, get ready. It's about to get ugly. You need to be prepared. And as Paul always said, my grace is sufficient for you. That's what he writes later. Uh, he received a word considering his ministry in Rome. He kept wanting to get to Rome, Acts 23. I mean, you see all of these things. Now with Paul, a lot of these, and a lot of these with some of these other guys, was what we would call a calling per se, is that this is something that God says. But this is about a rhema word, too. I mean, there's elements about this that's true. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be elaborate. It can be simple. It's amazing. There are times that God gives me one word, and then I begin to think about that. What does that mean? What are you showing me? I try to find scriptures that go with that. You know, what are you, what are you trying to say? And then it expands, and my understanding of it grows. But it's a lot of times it's something very, very simple. Sometimes it's just an idea. Willie George was talking about one day. He was sitting there praying. One day, he pastors a big church down in Tulsa. He's sitting there praying one day, and the Lord showed him that, that there was a bunch of single moms in their church that didn't have a car, or at least a dependable car, and we're struggling. It was just real quick idea. So he's like, okay, God, what do you want me to do with it? Spent a few days praying about it. How are we going to do it? Came over the thing. They gave away 45 cars or fixed up the vehicles. They bring their cars in. They had a crew of guys there that either fixed them up and all of that. But this was a quick word from God. Something that needed to be done. It's, again, it's these specially spoken, these unmistakable, they're undeniable, they're these words from God. And the majority of the time, the rhema that you desperately need when you're in a time of trial or whatever, Lord, I need something from you, I need some direction from you, is writing the Bible that you have. And it's amazing that that's the last place we always turn to. Right? I mean, we, we get in trouble, something's going on, we weren't doing something right, we weren't maybe walking in the perfect will of God at that moment, and what do we do? We start to pray, good thing to do. We start calling our friends, can be an okay thing to do. Sometimes we're just seeking sympathy, and then we're just like, God, give me something, and yet we have the Bible right in front of us. We turn to that absolutely last. These Raymond words, sometimes it'll re just relate to a passage of Scripture, a concept that's in Scripture, not necessarily a specific verse. It can be. But the one thing that will never happen in any way, will any Raymond word, prophecy, any word from the Lord in any capacity, will it contradict Scripture ever? Never, ever, ever will it. If it does... That's your first sign. It's not from the, from the Lord. It's not a thus saith the Lord. And I don't care who stands up here and says it. 
If it contradicts the written word of God, it is not a rhema. We need to understand that because that's happening a lot. Whenever somebody prays something over you, gives you a word that they say is from the Lord, or you have something that God drops in your heart, the first thing we do is we go to Scripture. Does this, I mean, just what you were talking about today. The Lord puts something on, all right, Lord, if this is you, then my husband will get on board with it. I don't need to say nothing. And that's a good way to do it if you're married. If you're not, argue with yourself. You'll be okay. You know, I mean, we have these things. Again, I'll tell you a story of Willie George. He was talking about a guy came up to him that went to his church and, and said, Brother Willie, I have a word for you. And he's like, okay. And he said, God's got you on the end of your leash. And he turns around and starts walking away, which is not something you do to Willie George. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not going to have any hit and run prophecies here. Get back here. What does that mean? And the guy's like, well, I don't know. So then he starts digging a little deeper because what was going on was a big building project, things like that. There were some growth. And anytime that starts happening, you get hurt feelings inside of a church. Unfortunately, it's just the way it goes. And, and so he starts asking the guys, like, well, I don't know what it means. He said, well, do you go to church here? He's like, yeah, I go to church here probably twice a month. I go to another one other times. He's like, oh, interesting. Do you pay your tithes here? Oh, no, 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 I don't pay my tithes here. He's like, so you're telling me out of the thousands of people that go to this church that the Lord could have used to come and give me this message, they picked a guy who is not even a member of this church? I don't think so. And he quickly dismissed it. And then he finds out that this guy's been doing this to a lot of people in the church. And then he had to get on and say, you're not doing this no more. And after that, I'm sure the guy disappeared. But it will never in any way, ever, contradict anything in Scripture. Ever. You need to know that. I'm sure you knew that. I'm sure this is not fresh revelation. But I want to make it clear, because if it does, it is not from God. So as we look at this, let's look at this whole two-edged sword thing. Because to us, we don't deal with swords. We deal with guns, right? It's like... It would be like having a sword that's dull would be like having a 12-gauge shotgun with 20-gauge shells. You know, it doesn't make any sense. It won't work. Right, Stan? Right. Okay. Even if they're on sale, it's not a good buy. So this two-edged sword thing is mentioned throughout the New Testament. And I'm going to ask you to turn to these real quick. And I know we're, we're running a little bit behind. I'm, I'm going to hurry. Revelations 1.16, because I just want you to underline these parts. Because there's, there's a truth in this that I want you to see. Revelation 1 and verse 16. He had, and he is Jesus, in his right hand, seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Have you ever thought, I mean, I pictured this as a kid. I'm picturing Jesus opening his mouth, and it was like the guy from Kiss Tongue, you know, that was real long. And I'm picturing a sword coming out, which is weird. The whole thing's weird. It doesn't make any sense until you really start breaking down some of the Greek. So this phrase, this two-edged, comes from the Greek word dystomos. And this is one of the oddest words in the entire New Testament. And here's why. It's a compound of two different words. The first one being die, which I think we all know what that is, two. But stomos means mouth. So when you compound these together, it's something that is two-mouthed. Make any more sense than it did before? So now you're picturing Jesus instead of just a sword. He's got two mouths, right? But John is telling us that this, this was a sword that had two mouths. And that's really how you could read this. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-mouthed sword when you break down the Greek. Let's look at another one. Revelations 2.12. Just flip the page or click the button, however you're doing it. 
And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Or again, you could say the sharp sword with two mouths. I mean, that's how you could say it. But flip over to Hebrews 4.12. This is where it's going to start to get a little clearer. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You guys know this. I know you've heard it. I know you've quoted it. I know you probably memorized it. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirits and of joints and marrow, and it is discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, Every preacher in America at one time or another has gotten up on that pulpit and just gone to town on that verse, right? We get excited about it. Here this two-edged, again, is the Greek word distomos, but the sword here is the exact same one in Ephesians 6. It's that makara, 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 however you say it. I'm going to learn to speak Greek one of these days so I don't have to butcher these words anymore. So why is the Word of God repeatedly referred to as a two-edged sword? Or even more correctly in the Greek, why is it called a two-mouth sword? So keep in mind that the previous swords that we just talked about, the gladius sword was this big and heavy one. It was sharp on one side, but it was dull on another. And they had to make sure they swung it right, because the dull side would hurt, but it wouldn't kill them. Where this makarai, this two-edged sword was sharp on both sides. It made deeper gashes and it absolutely wreaked havoc on the enemy. But when, when it was used correctly, it basically would kill them. It would leave them lying on the ground. So why two-mouth sword here? Why is the Greek written that way? It's because this logos, or this rhema, however you want to look at it, because both of them would be appropriate, is being spoken twice. The first time it was spoken, it was uttered from the mouth of God, given to men who wrote it down. That's where you get one edge of that sword. The other edge of that sword is when you and I open our mouths and speak it out. The Word of God was uttered by God. We then take that Word by faith and accept it as truth and confess the very promises that came from the mouth of God. How does faith come? By hearing and hearing and hearing. Right, we've heard that before. It's the hearing and accepting it as truth. And you can't hear it if you never speak it. It came out with one sharp edge when God spoke it, and the other sharp edge comes on when you and I speak it. It's being mouthed twice. Look at this again. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, now this is what it does, even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joy, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Here's the exciting part. Where's the battlefield? It's the mind. Where does the written and spoken by you Word of God pierce? It goes to the thoughts and the intents of the heart, you could say heart and mind there, same thing. Because what, what is the mind? Body, soul, spirit, right? Or not body, soul, mind, will, and emotion. Sorry, I'm getting all mixed up. It separates that. It separates the joint and marrow. I mean, you think about that. These things are put in there by God. They don't, marrow doesn't leak out. There's not a crevice that it comes out of. It would have to get in there very finely and pull that out. But the part before that, the soul and the spirit... This sword, this two-edged sword, this two-mouth sword divides your mind 
from your spirit. In other words, your thoughts, your will, your emotion is divided by the Word of God from God's thoughts, God's will, and God's emotions. The things that He says to do. This is why I got excited three months ago. I wanted to start here, and I'm like, well, that won't make any sense because we've got to build a foundation. But I like it, but it's like suddenly it began to click. When we talk about where's the battlefield, it's in the mind. When we're doing spiritual warfare, are we swinging swords at the enemy? Nope, he's defeated. The only thing he can do is lie to you. Where's the battlefield? It's right here. Where does he get in? He tries to get in the driver's seat of our mind and get us oppressed and get us under condemnation and get us where he can control our mind, will and emotions but God said I have a sword that I spoke and you do the same thing it separates the two all of our thoughts must be filtered through the word of God to see if they line up with his all of our experiences must be filtered through the word of God to see if they line up with what he says all of our denominations should be filtered through the word of God to see if they line up with what He says we should be doing. This divides our thoughts from God's thoughts. It divides the enemy's lies from God's promises. It's when we speak the word, we're doing battle with the lies of the enemy. We're doing battle with our mind. Your mind wants to believe the lies. That is why we gravitate towards negativity. That is why newspapers sell more with horrible headlines. They're talking about the bad things of the earth and all the bad things that are going on. Instead, of the, if Mrs. Smith was giving away cookies, that make page 12 in a small section. But a bomber blows something up, it's front page. We gravitate towards that. Why? We have an unrenewed mind, an unredeemed body. Our spirit yearns for the things of God. They're in constant battle. Romans 7, Paul is talking about it. These are the things I should do, but I don't do them, but I want to do them, but I'm not doing them, and I should do it, I know it, but I'm not, and I can't, but I know I can, but I don't. Right? It's the Word of God that separates all of that. This was a beautiful revelation because it's like, how do we know what the will of God is? We have that sword. We separate it. All right, God, I have a great idea. I've had these two brilliant ideas. And I'm like, this has got to be God. It's got to be. So I get everybody on board with me because I'm good at that. And I say, we got to do this. This is from God. And they're like, okay, whatever you say. And then we do it and it flops miserably, horrible. And it was probably the team's fault for not executing it properly. I'm sure of that. But, but it's just like, man, well, I, was, I mean, I just knew. I knew that I knew that this was, was from God. Which is why today I don't ever say that the Lord is telling me that we need to do this. I don't, I don't ever do Like, I feel this. Do you all agree with me? I mean, am I, I try not to do that. I, promise I, I won't promise that I won't, but I try not to. We've got to be diligent to do the things of the Word. We've got to be doers of the Word. Hebrews talks about this, and Jesus talked about it. A lot of times we're seeking the meat of the Word, and a lot, I've heard some of, some of us in here say, it's like, man, on Sundays we really get into the deep thing, the meat, and that's what we mean by it. But that's not what the meat is. And I don't have these specific verses to show you this, but go look them up. I think it's Hebrews 11 or 4. Or, I don't, it's in Hebrews. Read the whole book and tell me where it's at. But, but it's talking about that the mature person, by reason of use, referring to the Word of God, has made mature. By reason of use, not by reason of knowing. 
Not by study, but by use, by doing. Jesus talked about that the meat is the one who's doing the will of His Father. We have a church, not you guys, a church, a culture of church, that does not know Scripture. We don't know Bible, so I want you to picture this, okay? David, King Saul, David's getting ready to fight Goliath, right? Saul says, put on my armor. Have you ever seen the VeggieTales version of this? It's awesome. Go home and watch it. It's on Netflix, I'm sure. Gets this armor that does not fit him. Huge sword. I want you to picture, well, I wish my son was in here. He'd be a great one for this. Some kid, this immature person, because by reason of use, his mind has not been matured. He's young. We're hoping to God it comes someday, but it's so far not so good. Anyway, putting on this armor that doesn't fit him, that doesn't belong to him, that he doesn't own, with the sword so big, he can't hardly pick it up. And so he's just flailing it around, swinging at anything that moves. That is the picture of the American church. Because we have a lot of knowledge, but we don't know how to use it. We're not using it. We're swinging at anything that comes at us. Some aren't swinging at all. But some, I mean, it's like a baby moose on ice, right? Cord uncoordinated, just swinging, arms flailing, all of this stuff, because we have no directive. The sword of the Spirit separates your thoughts, your beliefs, your passions, your desires, your will from the things that God has said. It is the filter that every part of our life passes through. Amen? Let's pray.